Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. As always, I'm honored to be with you tonight. This is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen, and we work every day to bring you the facts. We've got the courage to bring you the truth, the insights, and the points of view that are so often ignored or censored by the mainstream media. Now, today we learned that a lawsuit submitted by President Trump's allies concerning the vote in Pennsylvania is expected to make its way to the Supreme Court. Pennsylvania State Representative Mike Kelly and others contend that the vote in Pennsylvania was conducted with what they called an unconstitutional no-excuse absentee voting scheme. Now, as these cases make their way to the Supreme Court, many of you have asked us how successful are these petitions likely to be. Um, When speaking with John Solomon during an earlier election special on this channel, renowned legal scholar Alan Dershowitz had this to say. Are you, are you convinced that this is going to end up at the Supreme Court, that these three or four states are going to all end up before the Supreme Court? Is that where this legal trail ends? If the numbers are there, not if right. the numbers aren't. The Supreme Court's not going to issue an advisory opinion. They're not going to issue a mood opinion. They're not going to give Trump a Pyrrhic victory. The plaintiffs are going to have to show that there are enough votes to impact the outcome of the election in a given state. If that happens, yes, it will go to the Supreme Court. And yes, I think at least under the constitutional challenge, the Article II challenge in Pennsylvania, they have a pretty good chance of winning. Now, Professor Dershowitz, host of the podcast, The Der Show, joins us now. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. No, sir, one of the big things that our audience loves is the fact that like, we're willing to bring them facts, perspectives that they often don't get in other places. And before mm-hmm. we actually get into the specifics of any particular case, I'd love it if you could break down for our audience the two big issues, namely equal protection and then also the constitutional challenge where the Constitution says specifically that state legislatures shall set the time, place, and manner of elections. If you could break those two big challenges down uh, for our audience, we'd appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that. I pride myself on always giving a straight legal analysis. I don't give wishful thinking like some yes. of my colleagues do. Yes. <laughs> the law doesn't always correspond with my particular politics, but I'll tell you what the law is. So there are two basic challenges. One, Article 2 of the Constitution says the legislature will determine the manner of electing electors and not the courts, but the legislature. And in Pennsylvania, what happened is the courts expanded by three days the the amount of time which ballots could be received. I suspect this Supreme Court will strike that down. Mm -hmm. We already know that Justice Alito has um, segregated out, ordered the segregation of those ballots. So we'll know how many ballots there are, whether there'll be enough to change the outcome of the election is questionable. The other issue is equal protection. And that is, in some counties in Pennsylvania, apparently, 
they allowed voters to come in and correct flawed ballots. And in other counties, they didn't. Under mm -hmm. Bush versus Gore 20 years ago, that may well constitute a violation of equal protection. Voters in different counties shouldn't have their vote determined by different mechanisms right. or methodologies. That's what the Supreme Court decided back in 2000. So those are the two core issues. But in both cases, the numbers have to be there because the courts are not in the business of giving advisory opinions. So the first question that will be asked the plaintiffs are, is the margin of victory that now Biden has over Trump greater or less than the number of challenge ballots that you would like to ask us to discount or count for your candidate? And they have to answer that question. Right, right. And then, you know, one other thing I'd love your, your perspective on, Professor, is this idea of evidence. One of the things that we keep hearing repeated and again and again is that people have said there isn't any evidence of fraud. Um, we know, we've, we've covered on, on this program, there have actually been hundreds of people who've come forward, who've signed mm -hmm. sworn affidavits, some of them saying that, that they were actually ordered to participate in backdating of ballots, for example. Just break down for us from a legal perspective, what constitutes evidence and is there evidence of fraud that you've seen in this, in this election? Well, there are two kinds of legal challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, one is wholesale, the other is retail. The two I mm -hmm. just mentioned, equal protection, Article Two, they're wholesale challenges. Mm -hmm. They don't require you to look at every ballot. They require you to look at categories of ballots. Once you get into the issue of was this vote proper, or was this vote not proper, was this vote filed by a dead person, you're getting into retail. Mm -hmm. At that point, you need evidence, and evidence is subject to cross-examination. You need a trial. The clock is running out. You know, we're down to the two-minute warning, and there are no timeouts left right. for the Trump team. So they have to be uh, pulling, you know, rabbits out of the hat at this point, and they have to do it very, very quickly. And they have to show, again, enough numbers that would make a difference in the outcome. I think it's very, very difficult for them at this point to reverse the um, presumed uh, result of the election. But I don't blame them for trying. That's what lawyers are supposed to do. And, and walk, us, walk us through and walk our viewers through specifically the timing issues that are involved here so that people get a sense for the calendar okay. and what, what needs to happen, please. We have some soft deadlines and some hard deadlines. Mm -hmm. Soft deadlines, though, what's called the safe harbor provisions. That's not really important. The important date is the 14th of December when the electors are supposed to cast their mm -hmm. votes. Then there's a date a little later on when Congress certifies those votes. And then, of course, the big day is January 20th when the right. president raises his hand and is, is sworn in. Um, but everything really has to happen before the 14th of December. But I'll give you a crazy hypothetical. Let's assume sure. that the, by the 14th, it's clear that one candidate or the other wins. And then they discover afterward a major computer glitch that shows mm -hmm. that tens of millions of votes, which really would have changed the outcome of the election, uh, were improperly cast or were fraudulently cast. Nobody knows what would happen. Right. We've never had that before. So one can't be absolutely confident even that, April, that, that December 14th is the absolute deadline. If you had a catastrophic event post the 14th and before January 20th, nobody knows how that would be handled by the Supreme Court. Excellent. And, and Professor, I want to I switch gears uh, here a little bit, actually away from the specific cases to kind of the culture 
that, that we're seeing in the United States. One of the things that you've talked about on, on, your, on your podcast is this kind of creeping culture of McCarthyism, specifically with not a lot cre- of... <laughs> well, not, not, cre- not creeping, but this, this, yes, this galloping culture of McCarthyism where you've actually had people come out suggesting that you should disbar President Trump's attorneys just because they're representing a client that they, they disagree with. Talk, if you would, please, about how dangerous this is culturally right now. Well, this really started with me when I defended President Trump on the floor of the Senate. Mm -hmm. A group of uh, bullying students at Harvard College circulated a petition trying to take away my emeritus professorship, which I had earned for 50 years of teaching and 10,000 students. But because I had the nerve to represent the president of the United States on a major constitutional issue, I would normally laugh at that. But at Harvard, The university fired the dean of one of the colleges for representing Harvey Weinstein. And if the university could do that, surely they could try. Believe me, they wouldn't succeed. Uh, I'd be in court in two minutes. But uh, they could try to take away my emeritus professorship. Mm -hmm. And trying to disbar Rudy Giuliani, you know, you could agree or disagree with his tactic, but he hasn't done anything warranting disbarment. I'm not worried about Rudy. He can do fine. Right. What I'm worried about is young lawyers who mm-hmm. read about this. Oh, my God, I don't want to be disbarred. I don't want to have my assistant professorship without tenure taken away from me. So I'm going to become a coward. And America yeah. is going to become a nation of cowards, unwilling to express principles, to support unpopular causes, defend unpopular people charged with crime. That's not the kind of country I want to live in. And at 82 years old, I'm going to continue to fight as vigorously against it as I did against the real McCarthyism when I was 18 years old. Well, look, and it's also it's a very basic principle of 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 the founding was that you should be able to have unpopular opinions. The entire idea of a republic where you have citizens who have constitutional rights is that you are able to actually exercise those rights without (laughs) majority, you know, a a, a tyrannical majority. John Adams, who helped draft the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, our second president, incurred enormous criticism for representing the British soldiers who engaged in the Boston Massacre. That wasn't designed to win him any popularity contests. And uh, we saw that with many American heroes up through the years. So, of course, our First Amendment was designed not to protect popular speech, but unpopular speech. But these students at Harvard have no idea of their history. They're a bunch of spoiled brats. They're a bunch of snowflakes. And they ought to be answered. They shouldn't be just accept, oh, you're young. You're young. No, no, no. You're the future leaders. And we're going to fight back against you. Absolutely. And we're going to prove that you're wrong in the marketplace of ideas. Absolutely. In the, in the, in the 30 to, to 40 seconds that we have, have left, Professor, if you could talk a little bit about the pardon of Michael Flynn and what you think that means, not just Absolutely. in the specific pace, but, but for future pardons. It was exactly the right thing to do. The pardon power is not only compassionate, it's a check and balance on excesses of the judiciary. What mm-hmm. happened is Judge Sullivan exceeded his authority in the case, and he was smacked down by President Trump, as he should have been, It was exactly the right kind of pardon to issue. But you wouldn't believe that if you heard some of my Harvard colleagues uh, talk about it, because they always take only partisan positions on these things. So it was exactly the right thing. The president ought to pardon widely, um, both for compassionate reasons and for checks and balances reasons. I hope he will do so. I have some cases in front of him seeking a pardon. Mm -hmm. Other people do. Uh, There are death penalty cases. 
There are pro bono cases. There are poor people in prison. You ought to look broadly at these issues of pardon and commutation. Awesome. Well, Professor Dershowitz, we very much appreciate you coming on. I know that our viewers do. I personally do. Thank you, sir. Very much appreciate your insights and perspectives. And folks, we'll be right back with more on actionable intelligence. Stay right here. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. There's a saying, you might have heard it, it goes like this, that censorship reflects society's lack of confidence in itself. It's appropriate because in today's social media landscape, censorship has gone from the exception to the rule. A lot of the big tech giants are now engaged in censorship. In fact, it's become such a problem that the president has threatened to veto a defense spending bill due to his concerns over censorship. In particular, the president says he's got issues with the provision that could act as a legal shield for big tech censors. Now, to break this down further, I'd like to welcome in our next guest. He's the host of the Sirius XM show, The Wilkow Majority, Andrew Wilkow. He is a patriot. He's a friend. Andrew, great to have you on today, man. Thanks for being with well, us. Well, thank you, and congratulations on your show. Thanks, man. Thank you. Andrew, look, you've been doing this for a while, and one of the things that I love about your show is that you talk to independents, you talk to conservatives, you talk to liberals, you got Republicans, you got Democrats, you got people who are calling in. In my sense is that most people don't want censorship. They still believe in that basic idea, that First Amendment, there should be freedom of speech in this country, but we are in a tough place, man. What's your sense on what got us here, and what's your assessment of where we're at today? I think, I think the left is totally comfortable with it. I, I mm. think the free speech movement, which allegedly was founded in Berkeley, California, not at the time of the revolution and the founding, uh, but uh, the, the free speech movement, they saw, it's like everything else that, that the left does. It's revolution, then shut down counter-revolution. Right. So they, they like the idea of free speech when it achieved their agenda. Mm -hmm. They just don't want anyone talking back. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember when progressives were skeptical of big corporate giants. Now they embrace it because the big corporate giants are doing the woke business. Yeah. So as long as you're doing the woke business and you're shutting down things like Orange Man Bad or you and me or whoever it is, right. then they're okay with it. Now, look, there are there are there is a strain of progressive Democrat that is obviously uncomfortable with it. I don't want to paint too broad of a picture, mm -hmm. but there there are definitely people, academics, broadcast executives, big tech, they are okay with this so long as it works for them. Yeah, look, it, they're very clearly happy to be put in this sort of elitist position where they get to choose who gets to speak and which points of view are gonna, are gonna be heard. What do you think we need to do, not just like legislatively, but culturally as a country to address the censorship that we are seeing, not just from big tech, but from a lot of the media elites? You know, uh, 
you, you look at the removal of the fairness doctrine, right? Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan could have actually expanded the number of voices that despised Ronald Reagan, given more power to the big three broadcasters. But the part of the removal of the fairness doctrine, if you go all the way back to its inception, the fairness doctrine was there when most of the country was served by a single radio station. So if you had a Republican owner or a Democrat right. owner or whatever, whoever the owner was, you would only get one perspective. And the government said, well, you gotta have more than mm -hmm. one perspective. Now we could we can argue the nuances of that. But by the time of the 80s, you had cable television, you had CNN, you had the major networks. You know, granted, the, the internet and satellite radio and all this stuff hadn't happened yet, but Ronald Reagan said, let the free market decide. Yes. And it turned out that the free market created not just, I know people are angry at Fox News, but it created the, the things that you and I are doing right now. It right. created the network that you're on. It created the network that I'm on. It created Newsmax, OAN. All of these things happened in the free market. So just like Twitter had angered enough people, it created Parler. YouTube created mm -hmm. Rumble. So in, instead of running to the government and saying, right. please, Mr. Government, do something, which is 10 times worse, we've actually proven that when these companies do the things that they do, they create their own competition. Yeah, well, look, they, they do. They clearly are creating their own competition. I think you've also seen, I know that you, you see it on your radio show, you must hear it from your TV viewers, like, People are frustrated. They don't want to be spoon-fed. I mean, it's just a basic part of the American characters that people want to make up their own minds. And you know, you know, speaking of kind of like some of the big tech, I want to switch gears for just a minute, and I want to get your thoughts on some. I know you're familiar with Project Veritas, right? And as a lot of people know, they just released this video featuring its founder, James O'Keefe, confronting CNN's Jeff Zucker. I want to I play part of the call and get your, get your reaction here. Let's go ahead and play that tape. Washington. You're unmuted. Hey, Jeff Zucker, are you there? Hey, yes. this is James O'Keefe. Uh, we've been listening to your CNN calls for basically two months, uh, recording everything. Um, just wanted to ask you some questions, if you have a minute. Um, do you still feel you're the most trusted name in news? Because I have to say, from what I've been hearing on these phone calls, I don't know about that. I mean, we've got a lot of recordings that indicate you're not really that uh, independent of a, of a journalist. Okay. Um, thank you for, uh, thank you for uh, your comments. Um, so everybody, in light of that, I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll set up a, a, a new system and we'll, uh, we'll be back with you. We'll do the rest of the call uh, a little bit later. We're gonna... All right, Andrew, give us give us your take on that. All right, so here's here's the deal. I told you I would I would, I would tell you something about myself. Yeah. I'm a rare breed in the talk radio game. I actually went to journalism school. So you know, there's multi. You you're, you're a former Navy SEAL. There's a million different paths into this business. Right. I'm the rare guy with the actual journalism degree, and and what he did there was awesome. And I've heard some of the some of the other other clips that are going to be released. Zucker is proving that CNN does not, and I say this emphatically and I repeat, does not do the who, the what, the when, the why, and the mm -hmm. how. You can actually hear Zucker on some of these calls ordering his people to shape perspective and, right. and pretend and package 
it as the news. And, and one of the best examples you could see, he actually says in one of the calls that the chirons, the, the underscores, are not harsh enough on people like Lindsey Graham. So you're telling your journalists that to, and they've, and they've said this for a while, look, orange man bad has made a new reality. We can't adhere to the ethics of journalism. Okay, then admit your infotainment. Right. Yeah. And, and it's also it's very clear from these clips that, as you said, like they're not trying to give people the news they are trying to push a very clear point of view. I want to I want to play another clip from O'Keefe's series. This is one where he has a CNN correspondent discussing the network's coverage of President Trump and whether or not he's he's conceding. Let's go ahead and, and play that here. CNN says on Jeff Zucker's 9 a.m. editorial conference call how they, the Democratic Party, powerful interest groups, may determine how CNN will cover Trump not conceding the presidential election. I just want to underscore something that Michael said earlier about the transition and Trump, because I've been talking to a lot of people this morning on both sides, and they, I just keep hearing the same thing, both from Republicans who have not come out to congratulate Biden, but, uh, but also to those who have in the Democrats. And that is that we have to be, you know, news organizations have to be very careful and very responsible about not giving Trump too much of a platform on his not conceding. All right, Andrew, there, there they are. They're talking about whether or not they're going to give the president a platform for the president's point of view. What do you, what do you make of this? Well, let's put the two topics together. Yeah. You know, it, it, I don't want these organizations censored. I don't think Jeff Zucker should face new regulations for this. Just come out and admit you're doing advocacy yes. pieces here. Just tell us what you're doing. Don't insult our intelligence. Don't pretend you're not injecting opinion here. We know you are. I mean, maybe there are some people out there that don't think they're injecting opinion, and maybe they actually want to pretend that they're not, but we all know that they are. Yeah. I have no problem with advocacy journalism or opinion journalism or outright infotainment that you're free to do that in this country but the, and the fact that that's where O'Keefe gets him stop pretending what you're doing is the news yeah and I I think that that's the key is that people just want the truth like let's just stop pretending CNN and a lot of that shows on MSNBC even folks from the Washington Post stop pretending that you're delivering the news just come out, admit you've clearly got a political agenda. There are clearly policy points of view that you're going to push. There are things that you're going to advocate. There are people who you're going to cover negatively and positive stories that you're going to tell. And let everybody know where you stand. But this kind of charade where they're acting as if they're these kind of old school journalism organizations, I just really think a lot of that trust has been diminished. And, I, and I'd, I'd be interested in your perspective. I think there's been a big downgrading in trust since 2016 even. I think that the Russia collusion hoax, this push for years of this false story and a lot of this effort by the media to kind of push these false stories has really degraded their, their credibility. But what's, what's your perspective on that? Okay, so when CNN says Trump's baseless claims of voter fraud, right? There are witnesses, there are affidavits, there are people who are coming out and saying, I yes. saw the voter fraud, right? And CNN says that's baseless. Okay, so what was the basis 
of the Russia investigation. Right. What was the basis of impeachment? The, what claims were made and verified in the dossier that led to this snowball effect, that led to the Mueller report? They didn't call any of that stuff baseless, right? Whenever the Democrats, how about Brett Kavanaugh? Did they call Christine Blasey Ford baseless? or Julie Swetnick, baseless. They had the FBI investigating 35-year-old keg parties. And even when her friends came out and said, yeah, I don't remember any of this stuff, they still said it was true. Yeah, it, it is It is really crazy. And especially, as you mentioned, there is evidence. There's real evidence that has actually come out. People have signed these sworn affidavits saying that they saw this election fraud. Well, Andrew, it is always good to have you on, man. We hope that we will join you, have you join us again here at Actionable Intelligence. And folks, I encourage you to check out Andrew's show, The Will Cow Majority. It's on Sirius XM channel 125 weekdays from noon to three Eastern. I've been there. It's a lot of fun. And on Blaze TV, Fridays at seven on his show, Will Cow. It's a lot of fun. It's very informative. Guys, it's been a pleasure. And folks, we're going to be back really soon. Stay right with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Reitens. Well, you remember the Covington Catholic kids? And you probably remember the way the mainstream media lied and misreported the facts about the encounter between Kentucky teenager Nicholas Sandman and Nathan Phillips. If you do, you probably also remember that that teen sought over $800 million in various lawsuits. Well, earlier this year, we learned of major settlements from the Washington Post and CNN for their role in spreading misinformation. Well, joining us now is one of the lawyers who worked hard, not just fighting for the Covington Catholic teens in the court of law, but also in the court of public opinion. Robert Barnes is a trial attorney of Barnes Law LLP. He's got many high profile wins in civil, criminal, constitutional cases. Robert, it's so good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, glad to be here. So, Robert, first, uh, you know, earlier in the day, we were speaking with Alan Dershowitz about this case coming out of Pennsylvania, which is now making its way to the Supreme Court. Give us your sense, please, for where the Trump team's legal arguments stand and the likelihood of success in this case that's going to be coming up before the Supreme Court. Yes. So there's several different Pennsylvania cases that will be pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, more that are going there. There's a state Supreme Court case that's been appealed there. Yes. There's a, in fact, two different state Supreme Court cases that have been appealed there. There's a Third Circuit case that's going up there. Who knows how many more will go up there due to the some of the crazy rulings that have come out of the Pennsylvania courts. Uh, all of them have a chance. It, it, the Supreme Court just for the same reasons in Bush v. Gore, mm -hmm. they said they can take any case, even a state case, if it involves the presidential election, right. because that impacts the federal statutes, that impacts the U.S. Constitution, that impacts the electors clause, that impacts safe harbor statutes, that uh, impacts, of course, due process and equal protection quite frequently. So if the court wants to take it, they absolutely can. Uh, 
They need to take it because the issues and the risks that are present. Mm -hmm. You have courts saying crazy things that make us look like a joke in terms of election integrity around the world. Like uh, you have a right to observe, but that doesn't include a meaningful right to actually observe. observe yeah. uh, so that's one. I mean, uh, saying that if you file suit after the election, it's too late. But if you file suit before the election, it's too early. I mean, these are just crazy doctrines that make a mockery out of election law, make a, a mockery out of our election process. So I hope the Supreme Court does take the case. They clearly have the authority to do so. The question is whether they have the political will to do so. Yeah, and Robert, break down for, for our viewers from your perspective, two of the big constitutional issues that are going to come before the Supreme Court is this basic idea of equal protection, that everybody in the United States should be treated equally under the law, which means that your vote needs to be treated equally under the law. And then also this constitutional issue where the Constitution is very clear that it is only the state legislature that sets the time, place, and manner of elections. Walk, walk our viewers through those two big issues, please. Absolutely. So in Pennsylvania, they've you've had secretaries of state make up their own rules. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Supreme Court of Pennsylvania make up its own rules. Local election boards make up their own rules. The legislature passed rules that are in contradiction with the legislature's own rules under the state constitution. So you've had some extraordinary – we've had an election like none we've ever witnessed before mm -hmm. in the history of the United States, and they all impact – constitutional issues, because depending on where you happen to live in the state, your vote is treated differently. Depending on whether or not the one set of rules from prior to 2019 or a different set of rules after 2019 that seem to contradict the Constitution are in play also impacts whether you can vote correctly and constitutionally. So the all of these uh, issues are impacted, and equal protection says uh, you can't have your vote diluted by one uh, by one set of standards being applied in one county and a different set of standards being applied in another county. This is part of the problem in Bush v. Gore. Uh, that's an equal protection violation. There's also voter dilution claims that anytime anybody gets to vote illicitly or by a different legal standard in a different jurisdiction, that's an illegal vote within your state that dilutes your legal vote. Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to be a constitutional claim. There is on top of that the fact the legislature is supposed to exclusively decide how the presidential elections take place while abiding by their state constitution and how they go about doing so. There's multiple issues in Pennsylvania concerning that. And then, of course, there's yeah. also the election day clause that says mm -hmm. election. We're supposed to have one election day, not election days and weeks and months, as took place in Pennsylvania. Right. And then and then, Robert, so so we've talked uh, with our viewers a lot about what's happening in in Pennsylvania specifically, lots of attention on those cases. But you also have cases that are still moving in Michigan and Wisconsin and Nevada and Arizona. Talk with our viewers, if you would, please, about what you see as the most important cases outside of Pennsylvania that are also moving forward. I think in all of those jurisdictions, you have a common problem, which mm -hmm. is that they discarded the election security safeguards that we've always had. Mm -hmm. And historically, if we if there's any kind of a legal vote that gets cast, that dilutes your lawful vote. Right. And you're supposed to have a right to a remedy. And you have a lot of these courts coming up with creative doctrines to play Pontius Pilate and avoid uh, having a me making a meaningful ruling or even hearing the evidence. 
And it's uh, and here's the key fact, folks. Mm. If if the signature match check was actually done the way some of these elected officials claim it was done, even though it's it's belied by the fact that you know Kanye was knocked off the ballot because Democrats were able to strike off almost half of his signatures, mm. and yet purportedly our signature match check produced one one hundredth of one percent of rejections. That doesn't make sense. Right. So I think in this context, the 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 uniformal provision that can give Trump enough ballots if they meaningfully enforce the signature match check in ways it's been enforced before or in ways it was enforced in this cycle towards nominating petitions to get on the ballot, then Donald Trump wins the election, period. The question is, will the courts force the elected officials to allow an independently confirmed mm. signature match check to occur? That's uh, pending in, uh, in Arizona. They just got a right to sample some of the signature match checks. Uh, all of these states, including Georgia, have refused to allow anyone to check the signatures. If there's no problem with the signatures, why are they all so scared to allow anyone to look at them? Yeah, and you know, we've we've actually had on this program and, and we've talked about very specific cases of individuals who were in Tennessee, they'd moved from Arizona, and then they found that the record showed that they had voted in Arizona and they've come out and said, not I didn't vote in Arizona. And yet the state of Arizona was saying that not only did you vote, but that you had a verified signature vote. So they're clearly uh, problems there. Now, Robert, what do you just from a from a legal perspective again? Let's talk about evidence because one of the things that the mainstream media keeps saying is, despite the fact that there's no evidence, there's no evidence, there's no evidence. I mean, we've had on this program and we've talked with people who've signed sworn affidavits alleging that they were ordered to participate in widespread fraud. To me, that that's the very definition of evidence when you have people who are signing these these affidavits, but give us your legal perspective about what constitutes evidence and that can kind of refute this mainstream media narrative that there is no evidence. There's really two categories. One is the evidence that you're citing. Mm -hmm. the, the primary form of evidence is testimonial evidence. Mm -hmm. It's usually circumstantial. And there, there is more evidence of election irregularities, illegal voting, and fraud, in fact, occurring in this election than in the history of American elections. You're talking about now thousands of affidavits from thousands of witnesses across multiple jurisdictions, across multiple states of sworn testimony under penalty of perjury. So you have record-setting evidence, and that's part one. And mm -hmm. then part two is what Professor Turley pointed out, that in an election fraud context, your main evidence is going to be in the possession of the state. You can't, right. unless... if. It's amazing. They're saying, oh, you can't prove the signature match didn't occur because we won't let you check the signatures. You can't prove there's something wrong with the ballots because we won't let you look at the ballots, even though the ballots have all now been digitized in many of these states. Mm -hmm. Georgia's secretary of state promised the whole state he would publish all the ballots to the entire world. Yet he has not yet published a single ballot to the entire world. Let's see if these ballots have some uh, abnormalities or irregularities in them, if they're weirdly marked only for Biden, if some of the, if some of the barcode numbers or serial numbers at the bottom seem strangely out of order, uh, given the mm -hmm. testimony that the Thomas More Society has developed of postal workers confirming that they were delivering mail, but wow. it turns out they were delivering signed ballots from one state to another. Well, let's take a look at these ballots. Let's take yes. a look at these signatures. That's where the best evidence is. If there's no evidence of fraud, why are they hiding the evidence from the world?
Yeah, I, it's, 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 I'm so glad uh, you touched on that. And let's also go back and touch on, I think you make a really important point about how much evidence there, there is. Because everybody recognizes that in any human process, there are going to be imperfections. There's never been a presidential election in the history of the country where there hasn't been some fraud of some kind that happens somewhere. But talk again about the scale of the evidence that we're looking at here in 2020. And if you could please compare that to what we've seen in the past. So in the past, the usually the only evidence to question a presidential election outside of we could go back to 1960 and times mm-hmm. like that where mm-hmm. there was substantial evidence had they pursued it. But in modern times, and like Al Gore and other cases, they had no evidence of irregularities or fraud. Mm-hmm. They only had evidence of undercounted ballots. Right. Uh, in 2016, all they had were statistical anomalies. That was mm-hmm. it. They had no evidence of in, of whistleblowers from in or from monitors, from observers, from from mailbox workers, from postal workers, from delivery workers, from election observers. With all of that evidence, we have literally thousands of witnesses who are putting themselves under right. the subject of criminal punishment. If they're lying, giving evidence in state after state after state from all across the spectrum, including Democrats that are testifying, independents that are testifying, people who voted for Joe Biden who are swearing to evidence under oath. And what they're saying in all of these cases is they saw extraordinary irregularities in throughout these elections. And one of the things the media has done a good job of gaslighting people on, the legal standard is not fraud. All you have to show is illegal, illegal votes were cast or systemic irregularities occurred. You don't have to occur that, that they intended to defraud. All that matters is did illegal votes get counted that are mm-hmm. bigger than the market victory. And we have that by multiple methods and multiple means from Matt Brainerd's statistically significant evidence yeah. in every single swing state at a level we've never had it before. Well, folks, again, uh, thank you so much. We appreciate you, Robert, coming on the show. We look forward to having you on again. Uh, We are going to continue to follow this for you right here at Actionable Intelligence. Stay with us. We're going to be right back in just a minute. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. Now, last night, our Real America's Voice president of programming, Dr. Gina Loudon, premiered her new show, Dr. Gina Primetime. She made some news, including a tweet from President Trump. She also brought some star power, the president's daughter-in-law, Laura Trump. Here's a quick clip. Go ahead and take a listen. Welcome back to Dr. Gina Primetime. Now, we know a lot of you out there aren't sleeping so well after witnessing the events surrounding this election and the corruption that just seems so apparent. We've got to keep the faith and got to keep fighting. And somebody who is doing exactly that and has been really for a period of years for this country is Laura Trump. Laura, thank you for being with us tonight. 
The jury is in, Laura, and we know that they cheated. The evidence is all around us. There's really no denying this. And I'm just curious, uh, your family, how are they dealing with this? Well, it's great to be with you, Dr. Jean, and thanks so much for having me. And you're right. Listen, we have to keep the faith. And I can tell you we're, we're dealing with it fine because we know the truth. We know that Donald Trump legitimately won this election. He won by 11 million more votes, Gina, than he did in 2016. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, we are, we've become accustomed in some way to having to work so much harder than any other campaign. This president we know works so much harder than any other president because he has so much against him. But really, look, we're fighting every single day, and uh, and we feel like we're going to uh, we're going to show very soon that this president is the legitimate winner of this election, and he's going to be the one inaugurated on uh, January twentieth. Your husband, Eric, tweeted about one of the odd statistics from this election. His tweet said, Biden lost two, uh, 212 more counties than Obama did in 2012. Biden won 477 counties versus Obama, who won 689. Yet Biden magically gained 13 million more votes than Obama. Please, he said, it's rigged election, hashtag. Uh, Laura, there are so many odd statistics like this. It is, there's more evidence here, as Phil Klein said earlier on in the show tonight. Uh, you could easily convict someone for a lifetime sentence on less circumstantial evidence. But we're just supposed to look the other way if you listen to the legacy media. Yeah, well, the media is in on this, so don't forget that. I mean, they're the ones that have declared Joe Biden president-elect. They're the ones that are uh, going forward and allowing him to give his uh, his updates and his little speeches in front of a sign that says president-elect of the United States. That's not even a real position. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is I think people feel it. People are really smart and savvy in America. And you know that something is off when Joe Biden somehow miraculously gets 80 million people so inspired that they came out to vote for him um, when he couldn't gather more than 10 or 12 people in a space for his campaign events leading up to this election, when he has gotten 13 million more people to come out and vote for him than the most popular Democrat in the history of America, Barack Obama. People see that something is wrong, and I think we've all felt like something hasn't been right with this. Don't forget, I think we all saw on election night how far ahead Donald Trump was, and then all of a sudden, for some unknown reason, we had to stop counting, we all went to bed, we woke up the next morning, and what happened? There were dumps of hundreds of thousands of ballots in very, very select cities all across America that somehow gave Joe Biden the edge on Donald Trump. I think people know something doesn't smell right with this. That's why we have continued to push forward. That's why this fight is far from over. And I want people to keep the faith, as we just said uh, earlier, that is so, so important. This is not over. Donald Trump won this election, and we are going to show that. Well, she joins us now. Dr. Gina, great to have you on. Your show is going to be falling right after this. Let everybody know. Tell them about Dr. Gina Primetime, uh, who you're having on, not just tonight, but what you're going to be doing with the show, please. Well, thank you. Well, tonight we have the whistleblowers on, so we're super excited about that. We want to bring these people forward and really yeah. give them a voice because it takes an incredible incredible amount of guts to come forward and knowing you're putting your whole family, your reputation, your entire past on the line just to come forward because the moment you put your name out there as one of the whistleblowers, rest assured 
the media is going to come after you in every way, shape, and form, as you and I both know all too well from putting ourselves out there the way we have. It's nothing like a whistleblower. And uh, so we want to commend these people and give them all the voice and the platform that they can uh, possibly and, get. And Dr. Gina, um, so we have are, one of them on tonight. The show in general, yeah. though, Eric, is yeah. going to combine sort of uh, my background in human behavior and just sort of uh, combining what makes the body politic act the way it does. Uh, that's what fascinates me. It's not what happens in politics that keeps me interested. It's why it happens. It's what happens in that human psyche uh, that keeps people involved and that, um, that makes it predictable or makes it unpredictable. Um, and it keeps us coming back for more. It's the story. And that's the part of it that I want to touch on every single night on Dr. Gina Primetime. Awesome. Well, we know we know you've already started doing that. You're going to keep doing it. You've been doing it on the election specials, on the debate coverage. And I think one of the things, you know, I'm really proud of that, that we do here, but I'd love for you to talk with, with the audience a little bit about your vision for this, is that we're willing to cover the stories that a lot of that legacy mainstream media simply will ignore or, or censor. I mean, t talk a little bit about why that's so important to you and why, you know, for example, you know, even tonight you're giving voice to these to these whistleblowers who a lot of their stories have been ignored by the mainstream media. Right. So taking off my my anchor hat and putting on my president of programming hat, what's really important to me about Real America's Voice TV is that we do something different in that we are trying to separate opinion uh, definitely from news. That's why we are affiliated with Just the News and John Solomon's News Folks. Um, and that's why we kind of make this transition from daytime that is more newsy uh, into kind of where you and I come in. Uh, I definitely am bringing up the opinion side um, and you're kind of transitioning us there. Um, and, and, and it's interesting and that's what we want to do. We want to make sure people understand. I am an opinion person. There's no doubt about that. Um, but we want to bring in both sides. And I'll tell you something. I would be just as all over these whistleblowers, just as all over them, Eric, I would want to give them just as much voice if the situation were completely reversed mm -hmm. and there were votes and truckloads of votes disappearing uh, from uh, the other side uh, if the election situation were reversed. I think that the truth is always, uh, be, always becomes self-evident when we just shine a light on it and that's what we want to continue to do. And so that's why these things are really important. It bothers me that the legacy media ignores so much of what is really happening out there and just talks about things that are kind of on the periphery and the things that are uh, shiny and bright and doesn't want to pay attention to the things that might be ugly. But I think when we address the things that might be wrong with our culture or our politics, um, that's how we can go about fixing them and even actually uniting us as a culture. We should all want free and fair elections, right? And so that's the kind of thing we'll be focusing on here at Real America's Voice and on my show too. Awesome. And you know, I think one of the things that, that Americans certainly agree about, certainly our viewers do, we hear from them uh, every day, is that people don't want to be censored. And they True. don't believe in censorship. And I think they're concerned about what they've seen from, the, from uh, a lot of the legacy media. But they're also really concerned about what they've seen from big tech. They're concerned about, you know, what they've seen from Twitter, kind of dis deciding themselves which speech they're actually going to censor. They're concerned when they see the conservative news sites and conservative websites are kind of dropping down in, in the Google results. I think there's a lot of concern out there right now 
about the tremendous amount of censorship that we're seeing in 2020. I know one of the things that you and I have, have always talked about is that like we believe in actually letting people get out there and speak and then actually letting viewers develop their own opinion because we respect the intelligence uh, of our viewers. Talk a little bit about why that's so, so important to you as well. Thank you so much for that, because that, that is a really big value here at Art Network. It's one of our founders' values. It's one of our CEO's values. It's one of my values, and I know it's every single host on here. We literally wake up in the morning going, who can we hear from whose story has not been told? Right. Eric, when every single day you turn on your television or your, your glass, whatever that is, and you're seeing the same faces and the same people, and that, that is where the power and the money base is, whether it's the bosses of big tech, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, the same politicians, whether it's the same uh, big money Wall Street types, whether it's the same media personalities every single day, then you might not be getting the real story. But when you're hearing from real people, like the whistleblower that I'm going to have on tonight, yeah. um, like the real people that we have on our air every day, that you've perhaps never heard their stories before, mm -hmm. um, like the way that we toss out our questions. If you watch News On with Miranda Khan, for example, um, she tosses out questions every single day. Um, our, our midday show, um, America's Voice Live, they, they ask a question every single day. They toss it out to the audience. They put it up on, on uh, not not just on Twitter, but they put it up on some of the other outlets as well that maybe you haven't heard of, like Parler um, and like CloudHub. Um, and those are the kind of voices that we want to hear, the ones that might be shadow banned in some instances. But we're going to give those voices a voice because we think that every voice is important and that the Americans that are being shadow banned right now might be the very voices that we need to hear from the most. Those are the ones we're going to highlight. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that is actually also fun is that not only do we have, have a good time here, but we actually do involve our viewers so that they can. They can reach out. They can send in questions to, to us here at Actionable Intelligence. I know they can send them in to you at Dr. Gina Primetime. And we're actually often asking them what's most important to them. A lot of times here we'll actually bring on guests to make sure that we're answering the questions that are so uh, important to our, to our viewers. Well, folks, stay tuned right here for more of Dr. Gina. After the break, you're going to have Dr. Gina primetime tonight and every night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central. And as always here at Actionable Intelligence, we want to bring you the facts and the stories that so often the mainstream legacy media establishment refuses uh, to bring to you. Follow us on Facebook. Go out. Check us out on Twitter and parlor and let your friends know that you've joined the team here at real america's voice uh, we'll be back with you in uh, tomorrow night this same time 6 p.m eastern 5 central